0: Good
1: morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to vote with your plate and palate. We're talking about the future of food. My first guest is Dr. Roanne Van Voorst. She is the author of Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food food. Dr. Van Voorst is a futures anthropologist, a writer, a TEDx speaker. She is president of the Dutch Future Society and works as a scientific advisor for Hatch. As a futures anthropologist, her core research focuses on what she calls sustainable humanity. And Rowan, you are a humanist at heart. I know from our chit chat before we got started, I'm taken by you immediately (laughs) with a big heart.
2: (laughs) Well, that's the best thing I've heard today. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, thanks
1: for joining me on the show today. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Once upon a time, we ate animals, the future of food, because most of us don't really think about the future of food. We make the assumption that food will always be plentiful and available to us. And that is not the case.
2: No, for me, it was, you know, food wasn't really a topic that I thought about much before I started writing this book, other than what am I going to eat tonight? Because I do love my food. Um, But I started thinking about it more when I had done research on the future of climate changes and the future of natural hazards for a long time. And I started with that, I think in 2008, I traveled to the countries where you could already really see climate changes. And then every time and again and again, people or experts pointed me back to the impact of the food industry. And, you know, I think we've heard all the stories. So, so it's not the most interesting part probably to go into, but, you know, the, the methans, the other gases, but also the water pollution, et cetera. And that in combination with a rising world population And not just a rising world population, but a world population that is pretty particular in what we want to eat, namely animal protein. Mm -hmm. Because we've been doing that the past 50 years a lot. We did it before as well, but we do it more and more, right? We want to have it three times a day, not just during dinner, but also during lunch, etc. And you can really see that in the poor countries of the world, the, the more developing countries of the world, people act after us. So they wanted to and that's simply going to be impossible, especially if you look at not just, you know, all the issues that we just discussed, but also the amount of land that we have. We have so much degraded land now that there's simply not so much left for more animals. So we have to do something right. And, and I don't think I gave the perfect, perfect answer with my book, but I wanted to explore at least an alternative road to where we stand now.
1: When we think about the farming and livestock industries and their methodologies for farming, in many cases, they are exploitative of the land. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think many people realize that.
2: No. And you know what is also very popular nowadays, and I wish I could say, and that would would be a wonderful idea. The popular idea is, well, we can just make it smaller scale again, right? We can make it circular, we can make it ecological, all of those kind of terms you often hear, which is great if you compare it to what we've ended up in, which is big industrial farming. And I think you nor I nor everyone I know is agreeing with big industrial farming. We all know it's it's not just horrible for the environment, but it's also really making a lot of animals suffer. I think we all feel uncomfortable with the idea of big machinery and immense factories, you know, that fishery has become and that livestock has become, livestock keeping has become. But if you look at the alternative that is often given, like, oh, let's do it more small scale, or let's do it more circular, that might be possible, but not if we continue to eat as we do now, and not if Also, the people from China and the people from India will want to eat what we are now having, because then we need not just what we have now, but even more massive, even bigger industrial farming. So even though it sounds so romantic to kind of go, just go back a little bit, I don't think that's possible. I think we either go onwards with what we have now and we know it's not well for the environment and for the animals, or we take a radical different perspective, which means really eating much less animal proteins. Which is actually good for our health. It is, right? And I, (laughs) you know, in my book, I do myth bust a lot. I wanted to write a really, really honest book. Because when I dived into this whole topic of the future of food, I found a lot of myths, not just, by the meat lobby industry, you know, who sometimes people are sometimes saying, oh, we can do it in a more circular way. And sure, we can feed the whole world. It's no problem. That's honestly a myth. But the other ones, like the the more activists, also have their own myths. And one of them is, well, you know, if you turn vegan, everything you will eat is automatically super good for your health. And you will instantly become one of those glowing, beautiful Instagram influencers proudly <laughs> showing off a green juice, right? And it's like, no, there's a lot of crappy food out there that happens to also be called vegan. And I sometimes make the joke, like there's a lot of alcohol that is vegan. You know, potato chips are pretty vegan and you probably don't want to live of that. So
1: <laughs> vegan, I, gluten-free, you know, it, it checks yeah, many of the boxes, but is it really healthy?
2: Exactly. But it is true that if you look at the general health of meat eaters versus the general health of vegans. Typically, the vegans are much more healthy. I am a bit critical sometimes about that because sometimes I think perhaps it might be the case that people who turn vegan were already concerned with their health, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also the case that, I mean, think about it. If you leave out a big piece of meat from your plate, you have to fill that plate with something And then you end up eating more veggies, which is a good idea. Or you end up eating more grains, which is typically also a good idea. So automatically you get a lot of good stuff inside of your body. And also some of the meat, especially the red meat, has been associated with some illnesses and diseases, right? So yes, there can be a health advantage to eating vegan. But at the same time, you also have to kind of keep an eye on Do I get enough of my micronutrients? And I turned vegan myself during writing of this book. I never was before. So that was a big shift. And I didn't find it hard, but I had to kind of learn to cook in a different way, right? You want to make sure that you get your B12s. You want to make sure that you get your proteins. You know, it's not rocket science, but you do have to think about it for the first couple of weeks until it becomes more like a natural process.
1: I want to go back to something that you said about feeding the world, that theoretically, we have the technology and the resources to feed the world properly. And yet we don't.
2: Well, yeah. One of the problems is that, of course, and I know people probably know this story, and perhaps it makes them a bit depressed. But one of the big problems is that, yes, we do have a lot, but we don't share evenly. You Mm -hmm. know, there's The Western world, and I always laugh when people say, but the Chinese, you know, the Chinese eat a lot of meats. Like, well, the average American still eats much more meat than the average Chinese person. You know, think about that. I think we underestimate how much we eat and consume and spend and toss away as well. Right. So that's one of the problems. And then rightly so, you say we have the technology. And I do believe that technology is going to be a tremendous help in the future, but sometimes we still have to make it take a couple of steps. So, for example, you now have lab-grown meat, which is meat. It's exactly the same. It's not fake. It's not an alternative. It's not plant-based. It's made from an animal. It's made from the blood and the tissue of an animal. So they take the blood and the tissue from, say, one cow, and then they have... A petri scale, and they make sure that that turns that it grows into muscle, and that is what we eat eventually. Which I mean, for a lot of people, would be a wonderful transition tool because then you can continue to eat what you already ate, what you love so much. You know, you can continue to eat that one perfect chicken soup that your mom always used to make when you were sick. <laughs> you don't have to give up that memory, but. You also know no animals were suffering for this, which is wonderful. And it's already existent, only it's now super expensive. So there exists burgers from, you know, meat labs, but they're like $17 still. I think in a couple of years, they will be much more affordable and probably available in supermarkets.
1: This is fascinating. I did not know about lab-grown meat, but I can promise you that I'll be researching it after <laughs> when we're done. Yeah. It's very, very interesting to me because my eldest is studying to be a registered dietitian, as I mentioned to you. And yeah, she's so a great. bit skeptical about she has been vegan in her life. She's been completely plant-based within this lifetime. And she says that for her, she needs to have a little bit of meat. She says everybody needs to have a little bit of meat, but I'm not so sure that that's true either. I wanted to touch upon something you said about in, in China and consumption of meat. In Asian cuisine, meat is generally a garnish.
2: It's not the mainstay of the meal, right? Exactly. Exactly. And and just to come back at your daughter, and I, I believe she is a wonderful dietitian because I, you know, I think I'm not sure if we need meat. I think we need the micronutrients that are in the meat, right? Yes. And if we could get those without the meat, then there's no problem. But I also think that her main task is now to you know, help people live a healthy life. And so for that, if people, like I say, if they're not ready to kind of think about their meal and perhaps put a little bit more effort, or perhaps if you work out really a lot, or you were breastfeeding, like I was a couple of months ago, and I was losing a lot of weight, you know, and then I thought, okay, so let's have an extra protein shake. For example, you have to kind of take care of yourself. Yeah. That's hugely important. And also I did what she did when I was younger. I went vegetarian, but I did it in one big step. It was like, I now want to be a vegetarian. And then you get <laughs> into this problem. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was also because I thought it was very cool. I was a teenager, you know, it, w- it was not just I love my animals. It was also, I love me and I want to be special, which is more of the teenage age than your daughter's age. I'm sure she was much more considerate when she turned vegan. But my problem was that I I went in one big lunch and then I caught myself, of course, being drunk at the next party, munching away salami, right? Because... I just really wasn't ready for it. I yeah. had not prepared. And so I think my body was literally screaming for this craving. But like you say, in other cultures, oftentimes meat is simply too expensive. People always ask me, I've, I've lived, for example, in Greenland, but I've also lived in the slums of Indonesia for a long time to do my fieldwork. And people ask me, well, you know, it's probably impossible to be vegan there. And I said, well, in the slums, people cannot afford meat. So everybody is pretty much surviving on tempeh, tofu, perhaps a little bit of egg or a little bit of fish every now and then, but not meat. Meat is for the rich. And that's another argument that I make in my book. You know, I'm sure that not everybody is ready to go all the way, but if we could simply go back to the way in which our grandparents lived, for example, and ate, oftentimes they really did not eat that much meat either. It was perhaps something for the Sunday and the Wednesday, right?
1: Yes, special occasion or special occasion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We need to take a break, Ron. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. We're talking about Dr. Rowan Van Voorst's book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food. To learn more, please visit rowanvonvorst.com. And on Instagram, that is the same handle, which is Rowan Von Voorst. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Rowan Van Voorst. We're talking about voting with your plate and palate, the future of food. Let's get back to it. And Rowan, prior to the break, you were talking about the suggestion that we move back to a time when our grandparents treated and celebrated meat as something special. So we didn't have it every day in our diets. It was something that was a treat one or two days a week. Talk a little bit about what this proposition, how it would impact, you know, our environment by doing just that one shift.
2: A couple of years ago, there was a study from Oxford University. And what they did was they compared animal protein products that we consider the less worst, I should say, for the environment, like chicken, you know, which is more Efficient, you could say, than a cow. A cow, when it eats grass, it loses a lot of the protein before it reaches our mouth because it uses all of that good stuff to grow and to walk, etc. A chicken is less worse with that. So you could better eat chicken, it will be less polluting, you could say. They compared that to what often is considered the worst of the veggies. So the avocado, for example, you know, everybody always says, like, oh, but if the whole world Would become more plant-based or vegetarian. We we start eating all of those avocados, you know, you can see like a future scenarios where people have bulks of avocados in front of them, and people are really concerned because you know that the avocados have to be flown in or whatever. And still the researchers found that even the avocados or the mongoes or whatever it is that you know horrifies just the idea of that, is so much less polluting. It's taking less water. It's leaning much less on land that is already degraded. And of course, I mean, for me personally, the suffering of animals or the animal cruelty in which we now live is perhaps the biggest advantage of going more plant-based. And for me, I think that has become the main driver of why I try to eat as much plant-based as I can. Sometimes I make an exception when I'm traveling, doing field work with really poor people, for example, who, you know, offer me a piece of chicken or an egg. And I feel it's not the time and the place, nor their biggest concern to start talking about animal suffering because they have perhaps hungry children, right? And I think things come first. But I think none of us really, really, understands how big the meat industry has become and we all still have or at least I did for a long time I still really had a little bit of a romantic idea where you know I thought of a fisherman kind of in his boat at sea which hardly exists not in the west you know it's huge everything is huge salmon, for example, is has become just as polluting because they also have m- methane gases, right? And so they're just as polluting as a livestock far- farm oftentimes. So it's really, it's that big. There's the problem with antibiotics. There's the problem that many farmers explain to me, like, it's no longer that you can survive with 70 cows. It's You have to have 7,000 now. And all of them have to die earlier than before, because after a couple of years they're done we don't need them for the milk industry their bodies are just exhausted they're bred now in such ways that they're really weirdly shaped so that oftentimes they can't really walk well or they have all sorts of diseases same with chickens some chickens can't stand up because they're so heavy they grow within four weeks wow. it's like if you look at them they look like alien chickens, right? Like it's, it's none of that was familiar to me. And I started realizing as well, there's a reason why so many of the bigger livestock keepers are not located next to where people live. You know, it's, it's they're far away, like the slaughterhouses are far away. And people will tell me, well, but then I only buy ecological meat, which I, I think it's so well-intended, but the animals go to the same slaughterhouses. And some of the farmers that I spoke to, my first chapter is actually called How Farmers Can Save the World. And I spoke to farmers who already sold all of their livestock or who stopped being a farmer. And now they plant lupine beans or soybeans or they have become plant-based themselves, which is really interesting. Oftentimes because they thought that that would be the future of food and hence more lucrative, but also because they said, I worked in a way that was no longer aligned with my own values. So I became a farmer because I love animals, but the audience, the public, the politicians, the supermarket prices, everything forced me to scale up and up and up. And there I was standing amidst animals and I no longer know their names. Hmm. I'm no longer treating them as I want to treat my animals, I'm kind of chasing them into the gas rooms. And one of the animal, one of the um, pig farmers that I spoke to said, you know, my clients loved me so much because I am a typical good farmer and they paid more because the meat was ecological, but they did not hear the screaming of the pigs when I bring them to the slaughterhouse. They don't know how much those animals try to resist going there because they smell the blood. And I did. And I could no longer live with that. It was a very different profession than I had imagined it to be when I was a young boy and I wanted to do it decently and I wanted to kill my own animals. But then he's like, I couldn't because I had become too big. And you can't do that if you're always in a hurry. And so I think, you know, just letting go, even if it's like two days less meat a week, That's already saving a lot of lives. But more importantly, I think it shows to supermarkets that we, as a group of people, are no longer okay with what is going on. So instead of investing in the meat in the supermarket, you're investing in a plant-based alternative, which is essentially saying, I want this plant-based company to grow. And I probably want this meat producer to become a little less, you know, to be sponsored a little less. I think we should go another way. And I think that's a very powerful proposition that really gives us something in our hands. Right. And that turns my
1: question or my point to you write about eating as a form of voting.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because that is what it is. I think many people, are afraid that they have no power, that it's the system, right? It's the government that has to change something. It's the companies that have to change something. And I agree, they should. You know, it would be wonderful if we would have taxes on meat, for example, that would be helpful and no taxes on ecological fruit and veggies and things that are really good for us. But until we're there, I think it is a form of voting. It is a form of showing what you want to be more of. So think about your children, think about the world that you want them to live in, and then think, okay, perhaps I want them to still eat like meat like my grandparents did, like every now and then when it's a really special occasion. But not every day, because we now know that it's no longer possible, not with a growing population, and it has many disadvantages to our bodies, to the animals, and to the environment. So if we want a more plant-based world, then we have to make sure now that those companies that are now starting, that are now creating the alternatives, that they are getting the money, that they're getting the support. And I always kind of like shopping now because it feels like I'm actually symbolically perhaps, but also really literally supporting the future of my daughter and, you know, my fantasy for a future world is not continuing the path that we've been on now for too long, I think, but but a more healthy and kind world.
1: Yeah. And I hold that same vision. I want to ask you as a futures anthropologist, you research many subjects on the future. And this book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food is just one of them. But you also told me that you have another project that you're working on. And I am in love with this topic. And I would love for you to maybe tease our audience with it because you're going to come back and we're going to talk about it.
2: Oh, I'd love to. And we're both saying the word love, yes, which is appropriate because the topic is on the future of love, the future of friendship, the future of intimacy. The book is actually finished. It's now coming out in the Netherlands first, where I live and work most of the time. And then hopefully it will soon be translated. So I hope that people will either follow me or find me on Instagram, for example, where I will keep everyone informed and I would indeed love to come back you know it's such an important topic as well because if you think indeed about the the future of your children you already can see around you things are changing right it's no longer you live in a village you come across a nice guy and there you go (laughs) it's now you have your tinder app or whatnot you have companion robots for the future you have love drugs You know, and I tested out all of these things, really dove into the literature, dove into the philosophy. What is friendship and how is it changing? What is love? What makes us fall in love? And can we create that with technology? And I'm giving the answers in the book. So I really would enjoy to come back and talk about that as well.
1: Oh, well, you're definitely going to come back. I'm excited to continue the conversation to learn more about the work of Rowan Van Vorst and her book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, The Future of Food. Please visit her website, rowanvonvorst.com. And on Instagram, you can also find her at Rowan von Vorst. Rowan, I am waiting with bated breath for your return. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much. We're going to take a brief pause, and we'll be right back.
0: Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
1: And we're back continuing the conversation about voting with your plate and your palate. We're talking about the future of food. My next guest is Joanne Molinaro. With over 4 million fans spread across her social media platforms, New York Times bestselling author Joanne Molinaro, also known as the Korean vegan, has appeared on the Food Network, CBS Saturday Morning, ABC's Live with Kelly and Ryan, the Today Show, PBS, and the Rich Roll podcast. She's been featured in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, NPR, and CNN. And her debut cookbook was selected as one of the best cookbooks of 2021 by the New York Times and the New Yorker, among others. And Joanne is in the house to talk about her journey. Joanne, thanks for joining us on the show today.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Me too. Excited to have you here to talk about the Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. You didn't start out as a vegetarian, and you also didn't start out as a foodie.
3: (laughs) That is entirely true. I would say it's very accurate. I went vegan in 2016, and I'd only just started cooking myself probably just a few months before making that transition.
1: Wow. All right, let's dial it back here. You were an attorney prior to yes. a wildly popular food blogger. Talk a little bit about your journey from the law to the kitchen.
3: Well, I think, like many lawyers and, and professionals of any stripe, it was hard for me to find the energy and the time to cook a meal for myself or, you know, for anyone else in my family after work. So I, like many people, enjoyed eating out or Ordering in, as the case may be. When I started dating Anthony, my husband now, then boyfriend, obviously, I wanted to impress him with my skills (laughs) in the kitchen. So I started taking everything that I had consumed from the Food Network and applying it to my very small, tiny little kitchen in my condo. And I was very motivated by my boyfriend being like, oh, this is so delicious and this is so good. And, and so that's really what kickstarted my adventures in the kitchen shortly. Shortly after that, though, he decided to go vegan, and it started yet another new chapter in our lives together.
1: Wow. And had he disclosed this prior to the engagement? <laughs>
3: You know, we so, yes, we were vegan for, I would say, about two years before we were engaged to be married. So, you know, it was something that was old hat by the time we decided to get married. But at the time he announced his decision <laughs> in 2015, I was very disturbed. I really did not like this change in our relationship.
1: And what did he say? Like, how did he introduce this? Like, honey, I've got something to tell you.
3: A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It was really like that because it kind of came out of nowhere. I don't know about you and your partner, but Anthony knows nothing about food. He basically ate butter noodles and salmon his entire life. He's Italian American. So he was not very familiar with cooking at all. And so for him to come out of nowhere and say, I'm going to make this radical change to my diet, not even just vegetarian, but I'm going to go vegan, I was really skeptical. I basically didn't think he knew what that meant. And I thought it was a phase that would last max like 10 days.
1: (laughs) So nothing with a face or a mother
3: basically, that's a really good way to put it. I mean, he wouldn't eat any cheese, which I thought was fascinating, given, you know, that he was Italian American and grew up eating cheese his whole life. What were we going to do without pizza and omelets and things like that? But shortly after he went vegan, he convinced me to join him. And I did. And we figured it out together. And now we
1: would never go back. So how did it work for you going from a meat eating attorney (laughs) to a vegan?
3: It was not without some hiccups. And I don't mean like dietary hiccups. The actual dietary change was not really that hard. It was much easier than I expected. But you're right, Lisa, I was a hardcore carnivore. I was actually paleo. So I didn't eat carbs and I ate largely animal proteins and animal fats. That's all I ate. So to go from that to vegan was the exact opposite. And added to that was a level of anxiety that I think I didn't know how to articulate at the time that taking away all the foods that I had grown up eating, i.e. Korean food, which are you know largely um, not vegan, would somehow disconnect me from my culture, my family, and my heritage. And this was something that Anthony couldn't understand as well. So, these are things that we did have to iron out, but the food part of it, ironically, was the easiest.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the cultural angle, because as an American of Korean descent and Korean food being pretty tasty in the meat department. You know, Mm -hmm. how did you adapt both? Well, I asked you about the diet part, but in terms of the cultural adaptation and your family members, how did that work for you?
3: Well, that's a really great way to put it, Lisa, because I think in your question lies the answer, right? I think sometimes when we think about our cultural background or you know our heritage, we think of it as sort of this amorphous sort of concept out there, or maybe we think of it as a place on the map. But for me, what going vegan helped me to realize is that culture begins with your family, with your mom and dad, with your grandparents, with your aunts, your uncles, That's really where it begins and that's where it has the most power. So ultimately what I decided to do was use this transition in my diet as an excuse to become much closer to my mom and my dad and to really elicit from them the stories underlying all the foods that I grew up eating, even if they were not vegan foods, just because I understood now, wow, the stories are as important as the food that they served on our dining table And then, of course, more practically speaking, Lisa, I needed to figure out a way to make them plant-based. How was I going to veganize all of these foods? And what that did for me was create an opportunity to reach out to my mother, to reach out to my aunts, to reach out to as many people as I could in my family, my first source for recipes and methodologies and tips and tricks in the kitchen. And of course, that brought me closer to them as well.
1: Is Korean food easily adaptable to vegetarian, to veganism?
3: I think that in many ways it is. And I'm so glad you asked this because I was just watching a Korean drama yesterday. And, you know, the main character, he visits a temple. And in Korea, the Buddhist temples are largely vegan. They are plant-based just in accordance with their own philosophy, which is to do the least amount of harm, right? So Korea already has this incredible, very long lasting, almost a thousand year tradition of eating plant-based, at least in certain sectors of the country. So this, you know, man in the Korean drama, he sits down at the table and he is chowing down on a completely vegan meal. Like (laughs) it's nothing. Like there's no, this is no different. This is not strange. And it occurred to me, In America, if somebody were to tell you, hey, come on over, I'm going to make you an entirely vegan meal, a lot of times that's going to be met with, oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to taste good, or that's going to be strange or what are the ingredients, you know, all sorts of kind of intimidation by vegan food. Whereas in Korea, it is already so much a part of their culture. It's so vegetable centric that it really isn't
1: unusual. I want to ask about the protein part. Are beans a big part of the Korean vegetarian diet?
3: Well, soybeans are, right? Tofu. Yes. Tofu is obviously related to soybeans. And soybeans in basically every iteration is part of the backbone. Of Korean cuisine, whether it's fermented soybeans, uh, soy sauce, fermented soybeans paste, which is tenjang, or tofu, which is a different processing of soybeans. So you're going to see that in so many different recipes. The other kind of protein that I like to consume are not soybeans, but just like regular beans, like black beans and lentils and things like that. And you'd be surprised how many of those beans actually make their way into rice, which of course is another staple of Korean cuisine.
1: And it's the blending of those two, right? That will give you the complete protein or no?
3: Oh, well, you know, I don't really focus too much on complete protein, not complete protein, but my understanding is tofu is a complete protein in and of itself. So I would say I try to have protein tofu, I should say, you know, pretty regularly, I would say about four to five times a week, at least one meal a day.
1: And tofu takes on the flavor of whatever you're cooking with, and it has so many different textures.
3: Exactly. And I love that you mentioned that, Lisa, because I think so many times people focus on just the one, which is extra firm. Give me the extra firm tofu, because I think they're trying to mimic chicken or some other kind of animal protein. But you're absolutely right. Tofu comes in every imaginary texture and And the more you play around with it, the more versatile that protein can be for you.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your family story, because you come from a family that had an immigration experience coming from Korea to America. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and how that plays into your influences.
3: Well, I think that my family is probably similar to many families in the United States. My own late father-in-law, Anthony's father, immigrated to the US when he was nineteen years old from Italy. My parents came to the United States in their mid-20s and they emigrated from South Korea, but even before they were in South Korea, as I think, you know, I've alluded to in multiple know TikToks and other videos on my Instagram, my parents fled North Korea, the region that is now known as North Korea when they were babies. So their story all the way from North Korea to South Korea to Chicago, Illinois, is fraught with so much danger, with risk, but also with heart and courage and resilience. And that is a story that I think is not only relatable to so many people, all over the world, whether you're a refugee or not, I think it's also a story that deserves to be seen
1: and seen in the context of the food journey as well. I mean, that's what I love about your book, The Korean Vegan Cookbook: Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen.
3: Yeah. So here's the thing with food: everybody has to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, who you are, where you're from, or you know, how old you are. Everybody needs to eat food. So it is one of the most powerful vehicles for connecting us, to heal us, to bridge any gaps. I always think of my recipes, my videos, my stories. I think about inviting people to my dinner table and say, Hey, I know you're hungry. I know you need to eat, whether you're vegan, whether you like Korean food. Why don't you just sit at my table for a little bit? I'll do the cooking. But if you have a little time, I'll also share a story or two about, you know, what happened today or something that my mom told me, or maybe even about how she came to Chicago. Cause these are the things that make the food and the people memorable to you.
1: Yeah. So we're talking not only about physically nourishing ourselves, but emotionally nourishing ourselves.
3: Exactly.
1: Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, Joanne Molinaro. We're talking about the Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. To learn more, please visit Koreanvegan.com on Twitter at thekoreanvegan, and on Facebook and Instagram. Those handles are also thekoreanvegan. We'll be right back.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and harvestinghappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: we're back. Let's get back to the conversation with Joanne Molinaro. We're talking about your plate and your palate, the future of food. Joanne, I want to pivot the conversation now a little bit to your social media sensationalism, because you started this project in 2015, 2016, things took off. And then during the pandemic, you decided to step into a different medium. And I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your COVID project on TikTok.
3: Yeah. So my story, again, is probably very similar to many people's stories. I was the typical person who was completely burnt out by traditional media and everything that I was seeing on TV. I just couldn't bear listening to it all day long. So I decided to go on TikTok. I, you know, I'm really not the generation of TikTok, I'm 43. So I'm past that. And so it took a little bit of learning for me to even understand what it was, how to log on. And then, you know, I'm seeing all these random, you know, people dancing and I'm like, what is this about? But eventually, after a little bit of time, I found a lot of videos, very short ones that I found funny, that I found diverting, and also also very inspiring. And what it inspired me to do was to create my own content. It was a really nice little, I guess, hovel, if you will. It was a place for me to dig into that was separate from my professional job, from everything that was happening outside in the world. And it felt really, really safe. And it felt really fun. I started by posting content that had nothing to do with food. I was talking about things like politics or COVID. You know, it's funny. I You know, started TikTok to get away from COVID, (laughs) but then I was sitting there creating, you know, content about my views on masks and things like that. It was all part of a much larger conversation and an evolving process about what we were learning, you know, about the disease, about the pandemic, and also about people in general. But then I started to see content of food, people making 60 second recipe videos. And I said to myself, well, you know, I am a food content creator. I am a food blogger. I have had an Instagram for many years and I've got a book coming out too, you know, in a year, maybe I should do a recipe video. So I threw my phone up against the wall while I was chopping up potatoes, <laughs> and was making some, I know it was really like that. It was like also like a really bad phone. I had no idea what I was doing. My husband, you can hear him playing, piano in the background. He's yelling at one of his students. It is really that low key. And before I knew it, it had over a million views. And that is the best motivator to creating more content.
1: Well, I think because it it resonates, right? Like it it touches a core. Like this is real life. This woman is sort of in mm-hmm. her kitchen. Her husband's doing his thing in the other room. People are were open and still remain open, I think, to learning new things. And because we have attention spans of fleas to give it to us in small <laughs> dosage doses is even better. <laughs>
3: I think you hit the the nail right on the head. All of those things combine to create this appeal that I didn't know I had accidentally tapped into. And it's one that I've now been very much engaged with uh, over the past couple of years.
1: Let's talk a little bit about sort of the morality or ethics of moving to a plant-based diet. Because, you know, you said you talked about politics, so let's just go there, you know? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I mean, give us your take on this, because, I mean, when we talk about ethics, and I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, I'm not a, you know, complete carnivore, but I, you know, I do a little bit of everything, you know? And I get it. I get why people make that choice. And I get why eating sustainably farmed foods is good not only for the land and for people, right? It creates a social good.
3: Well, I think that... You know, I'm not a philosopher. I took one class in philosophy. That's enough. You're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's about all you need. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that. I mean, for me, one of the things about ethics or morality is that it is a system that is reserved for human beings, yeah. right? We are having ethical conversations. We're having discussions about this as humans. That is our gift our ability to have those conversations, but in many ways it is also our responsibility. I always feel that with privilege comes responsibility. So when I think about animal ethics, the way that I view it, and this is not the way everybody else does, but this is the way I view it. I always ask myself how much suffering is necessary if this suffering isn't necessary for me, for you, for everybody else. Then perhaps we should eliminate it as much as we practically can. That's what guides my life and my choices. So, and let me boil this down very practically. Right after I went vegan or I, you know, transitioned to a plant-based diet, I remember I was walking home from work and I passed by this cafe that was adjacent to my building. And I remember that the last thing that I'd eaten right before going plant-based was this fried chicken sandwich that this cafe was really good at making. And I got to tell you, Lisa, I loved fried chicken. (laughs) Like I loved fried chicken before going vegan and fried chicken sandwiches. That was a vice of mine. And as I walked past the cafe, I could smell the fried chicken and it smelled so good. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I could just go in here nobody would know. My boyfriend won't know. No one that I've told that I've gone vegan would know. It would just be me and the fried chicken sandwich. Mm. And as I was thinking about that, I also couldn't help but think about all the things that one chicken had to go through its entire life just to satisfy me for seven minutes, which is about how long it would take me to scarf down that chicken sandwich. And at the end of the day, I said, that's not necessary I can survive, I can live a very happy, wonderful, satisfying life without the seven minutes of a fried chicken sandwich. And in so doing, I can ensure maybe that one chicken doesn't have to live a horrible, tortured life. That is it in a nutshell for me. I realize, like I said, many vegans have very different ideas about speciesism and animal ethics and morality. I always ask myself, is the suffering necessary? And if it isn't, Do I not have some responsibility to extend the compassion that I have the capacity for to prevent that suffering?
1: I hear you. And that is so eloquently put. And it piggybacks on what my previous guest today was talking about. Rowan talked about, you know, eating being a form of voting.
3: Exactly. It's an activism. It's when you put that thing on your plate, whatever you decide to put on your plate And, you know, we don't have to go into this, but, you know, I've been very open about my struggles with eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Going vegan was the first time in my life that eating was not just an act of calories in versus calories out. How do I make myself as skinny as I possibly can be? For once in my life, eating was something that was so much more fundamentally important to compassion than it ever had been in
1: my life. It's interesting that you say that because... It sounds like it was a liberation, you know, and that, and yeah, yeah. That's what I'm hearing as you're describing it in quite passionate language, that liberation. And that at the same time, it was the application you were of compassion towards these animals. Maybe you were applying to yourself in some way.
3: Oh, Lisa. I mean, like you should be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) That is is exactly what it was. I mean, I'm so glad you can hear that because- I remember feeling like all these chains had been lifted off of me when I had that sort of light bulb moment of walking past that cafe and saying, no, I don't need to eat this chicken sandwich. I'm fine without yeah. it. And the amount of weight that lifted off of me and to hear you say, yes, it is an application of compassion, certainly to animals, but absolutely to myself. And that is very much in line with the Buddhist principles that we were talking about earlier, the plant-based food in Korean Buddhist temples.
1: Yeah, I I really hear this so, so strongly. We're we're nearly out of time, and I want to get into a couple of the nitty gritties of the recipes in the book, because I would love for you to share a couple of your favorite modifications. But before you do, I want to also mention that like a fried tofu sandwich is pretty good if it's prepared right. (laughs) It is. It's sure from the non vegan. I mean, I can happily say that <laughs> it's pretty good.
3: <laughs> I made a tofu katsu probably about a month ago, Ooh. and I kid you not, it was so good. I kept every time I come up with a new recipe, I would like, say, This is it. This is the one. This is the best recipe I've ever <laughs> come
1: up with. But that tofu katsu recipe was quite memorable. So
3: tell us, let's start
1: there. What's the easy modification?
3: Well, the easy modification is simply, like you said, use tofu instead of chicken or pork. Uh, I think pork is usually what's used in traditional tofu or traditional katsu, I should say. And that one really came right out of my childhood. I remember when I was eight, nine years old, every time we went to a Japanese restaurant, I'd order katsu. I loved it. And I really was craving it one day. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to use super duper extra firm. And and by this, this is the kind that comes packaged in a vacuum sealed yes. packaging. You know that the liquid has been just completely removed from it. So it really is a cutlet. You cut that thin. I actually stuffed it with a little bit of vegan cheese, which is all the rage right now in Korea. And then I triple dredged it. That's the other trick uh-huh. to this. You got to triple dredge and breadcrumb it. If you just do it once, Ooh. yeah, you're not going to get the kind of crunch. <laughs> But when you cut into a triple dredged cutlet, you're going to see the layers and it is going to be just amazing, just totally spectacular. Oh,
1: God, that sounds so good.
3: <laughs> it was really good. It was amazing, actually.
1: <laughs> okay, a couple other modifications.
3: Well, another modification that I really like, and I'm a baker. That was actually what I was doing when Anthony and I first started dating as I started baking all the chocolate cakes and pies and cookies and muffins because he's got just a ridiculous sweet tooth. And so when I went vegan, I started modifying all of the vegan recipes or all of the recipes to exclude eggs and butter and cream. And one of my favorite modifications is what do you do for eggs? A lot of people use flax meal mixed with yeah. water, which I think is great for that gelling you know, quality. But my favorite is aquafaba, which is an internet coined term for bean juice it's sort of the leftover juice in a can of beans.
1: Oh. If you have
3: yeah, if you've ever tried whipping that stuff with a stand mixer, you will be absolutely amazed. It turns into a meringue wow. just like egg whites. It's incredible.
1: And it does make sense, you know, it's like a little slippery, sticky, gelatinous. Yes. Spring.
3: Exactly. <laughs> It is. It's really incredible. So I love using it for a lot of my baked goods, for my cakes, and my cookies and banana bread. I, I think it just provides a little bit of lift to your crumb. You know, it's not going to be perfect. That's not what veganism is about. It's about finding ways to eat in a way that's more compassionate, but still delicious.
1: Aquafaba.
3: Mm-hmm. It's really cool. There's an entire Facebook group that's just dedicated to Aquafaba and the things that they're doing with it are absolutely mind-blowing. Like they should all be like chemistry professionals.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's the thing that really sticks out for me is that people who have perfected vegan cuisine, I don't mean just eating like, you know, the plant-based foods as separate foods, but really the, the high cuisine and making fabulous recipes, there is understanding of chemistry.
3: Oh, there is a technical level to cooking that far exceeds my ability to understand. <laughs> but, you know, when you go to places like 11 Madison Park, which, you know, is ranked one of the best restaurants in the world, and the head chef there has turned the entire restaurant plant-based. Really? And when Didn't you, know that. Yeah. And I have been there. Oh, yeah. How, but that must Times have been, article. when yeah. was that? That was about two years ago. There was a big article in the New York Times about it. He now actually offers a take-home cooking kit where you can make your own vegan meal out of his kit. But, you know, he really believes in this. He believes in sustainable eating, and that's really put the money where his mouth is, right? But that's where I think that vegan cuisine can be super exciting. When you see some of the greatest culinary technicians in the world channeling their talent, their expertise, and their knowledge to compassionate eating, I find that to be so exciting.
1: I agree. It's it's very, very inspiring. And when you have a great vegan meal, you do not walk away hungry. You do not walk away unsatisfied. You're like, wow, that was good.
3: I think that's right. I think long gone are the days where vegan meals are simply wilted salads that
1: look a little bit (laughs) (laughs) bad.
3: I think we're now at a place where vegan food can be exactly what you described, satisfying and
1: filling. And delectable. I mean, really delectable. Exactly. I, 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 one of my kids went through a vegan phase, and she's quite the foodie, quite the baker. And she whipped out some stuff that was just off the charts spectacular, you know, dessert-wise.
3: That's music to my ears. Yeah, it was
1: very, very impressive. I'm like, wow, she's studying to be a dietitian. Oh, well, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, she's interested yeah, in that's culinary medicine. So there you go. Food should be thy. Yes, yes. This has been such a great conversation and insightful in so many ways. And hopefully it gives our listeners some food for thought, no pun intended, about the food choices that we make every day and opportunities to kind of... Embrace new ways of being, and we might even surprise ourselves and become TikTok sensations in our own kitchen like you. <laughs> I'm going to look for you there, Lisa. <laughs> I'll, you I'll there. see you there. <laughs> Joanne Molinaro, thanks for joining me today. To learn more about the Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen, please visit KoreanVegan.com on Twitter at The Korean Vegan, and Facebook and Instagram as well, The Korean Vegan. Thanks, Joanne.
3: Thank you, Lisa. I've had a blast.
1: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Roanne Van Voorst and Joanne Molinaro, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.